0: Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. This podcast is about being black in America for over 80 years. It is Thursday, January 25th, 2024. The U.S. is amplifying its war in Yemen in retaliation for Yemen's protest against the ongoing genocide in Palestine. Meanwhile, the International Court of Justice will rule on South Africa's case against Israeli genocide tomorrow. Brian Decker is joined by Vijay Prasad the executive director of the TriContinental Institute for Social Research. He says that Palestine and Yemen will not be
1: defeated. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Vijay Prashad. He is the executive director of TriContinental Institute for Social Research. He's the chief editor of Leftward Books. He's a prolific author and most recently publishing a new book with Noam Chomsky called The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan and the Fragility of US Power. Vijay Prashad, welcome back.
2: Thanks a lot, Brian. It's great to be with you as usual.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, Right before we started our program today, the announcement came that the ICJ will rule on Friday Uh, The ICJ is the primary judicial branch of the United Nations. Uh, The South Africans made a dramatic uh, case, an 84-page brief documenting that the Israelis have the intent to commit genocide using the statements of Israeli officials, civilian and military, the intent to commit genocide, and the methods and the application of military force such that they are indeed committing genocide. First of all, Let's talk about the importance of this application to the ICJ by South Africa, and what do we expect, and what's the process if the ICJ um, moves to uh, adhere to or give uh, South Africa relief in its primary uh, demand, which is for an immediate end to the fighting in Gaza.
2: Brian, it's really important to start by clarifying for people that there are two important international courts that are quite close to each other in that part of the low countries of Europe. One is the International Criminal Court, which was set up based on the Rome Statute. Now the International Criminal Court is designed to go after individuals. The special prosecutor of that court is given a latitude, authority, to indict individuals and to hold individuals to account for what are considered crimes against humanity, genocide, and so on. That's the International Criminal Court. Um, the South Africans took their case to the International Court of Justice, a much older court, developed in 1948. It's a court with which has 15 justices appointed by the UN Security Council. The difference between the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice is that the Court of Justice is a court where countries, member states of the United Nations can make a dispute uh, before judges uh, against another state. This is an interstate court, not a court where a prosecutor can indict individuals. It's very rare to see a country of the Global South uh, come in to the International Court of Justice with such a powerful case against another member state of the UN, which has been fully backed by the West. We really haven't seen this kind of thing happened before imagine a previous instance was the case against myanmar but you know myanmar is not a country backed by a western government it in fact uh, it, its its activities against the rohingya uh, were very much maligned in the west as well and correctly so uh, appalling treatment of the rohingya people but at that time the west was in support of the dispute in the international Court of Justice. This is one of the first cases, to my mind, where a global South country backed by other global South countries, uh, and not only are they global South countries, but South Africa is not a Muslim majority state. So you can't say that this has got to do with something narrowly about, you know, Islam or or, or that this has got to do with solidarity with Muslims in, in, in Gaza. No, no, this is a political case. The South Africans have a history from 1948 to 1994 of living under direct apartheid. They understand what apartheid is. They have been concerned for a long time, the last 30 years since they ended apartheid. They've been concerned about the situation of the Palestinians under Israeli rule in the occupied Palestinian territory as well as inside 1948 Israel. So the fact that south africa brought this case to the international court of justice the fact that it was backed by a range of countries including countries in latin america uh, is something i think notable the 15 judge panel plus judges one judge from israel one judge from south africa have been reviewing as you said this remarkable 84 page document which documents uh, the claim of genocide Israel was not really able to answer that claim. On Friday, when the judges come back and make their their, their comments uh, on this, uh, it is hoped that they will advance provisional measures. That's the term of art here: provisional measures. Uh, and those provisional measures, which the South Africans have asked for, uh, include, as you said, an, an immediate ceasefire. Now, it's important for people to recognize that this court decision is, is, is binding. It's not um, a decision which can be appealed. This is it. If they say provisional measures, the fighting must end, Israel must stop the bombardment. Israel must stop the bombardment. The question rises, Brian, who is going to enforce uh, this judicial decision? And therefore, the uh, hearings document will go to the UN Security Council and it is, up, it is incumbent upon the UN Security Council to enforce this, this ruling. Now, this is going to put a lot of pressure, Brian, on the U.S. government. The United States won't have the space to veto anything. It's not a UN Security Council resolution. This is a binding ruling coming from the International Court of Justice asking the Security Council and the United Nations To enforce the provisional measures. This is not uh, asking them to frame a resolution. There's no room for a veto. How will Israel react to this? Will they stop the fighting? How will the United States react to this? Will they allow the enforcement uh, of the ruling if indeed the ruling says on Friday um, that the Israeli bombardment must cease? These are open questions which we will have to uh, return to perhaps next week when it's clearer how they react, What, firstly what the ruling is, and then how Israel and in particular the United States react to it.
1: Right, so Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel had said, regardless of what happens at The Hague, meaning at the International Court of Justice, this war is gonna continue, we're gonna go forward. And you know, uh, Vijay, in the last couple of days, there was a big announcement, big news in Israel that 21 or 22 Israeli soldiers had been killed all at once. And that was considered like a major news story uh, evoking lots of conflicting emotions inside of the Israeli body politic. Uh, Again, we have 25,000 Palestinians have been killed uh, since October 27th. And it's probably a lot more than that. And 90% of the population has been, or maybe it's 85% have been displaced. They can't live in their homes because their homes have been bombed and destroyed or badly damaged. So they're they're running, they're fleeing. But in fact, there's nowhere to hide. Uh, those soldiers were killed because they were preparing to demolish buildings. They were putting explosives around the building and some uh, Palestinian fighter hit a nearby tank apparently with a, a rocket propelled grenade. And so all of the explosives blew up while they were still there. But when you think about the Israeli military going through and blowing up buildings and saying, oh, this is in self-defense, I mean, how is that not genocide? And how is that not a war crime as defined by the Genocide Convention and other international law that speaks to war crimes?
2: Well, firstly, I think Mr. Netanyahu's statement that they will continue to prosecute their genocidal war regardless of the International Court of Justice ruling is an indication that the Israelis are preparing for the International Court of Justice to offer provisional measures and demand a ceasefire. I think that itself is an indication. But now it's important to recognize what's happening in Israel, within Israel, Brian. I mean, I think um, within Israel, polls are showing that Israelis don't want to know what's happening in Gaza. They simply don't want to know. There is a recognition that this bombardment has been horrific, genocidal, and so on. Gadi Eisenkot, former head of the Israeli Defense Force, leader now of the opposition in Israel, a member of Netanyahu's war cabinet, told an Israeli channel, Channel 12, last week, that um, Mr. Netanyahu has lost the trust of the Israeli people and that Israel must go to elections. I found this very interesting that Mr. Eisenkot made this statement uh, right now, at this point. Netanyahu is having a hard time balancing his coalition. Uh, There is now for the first time internal dissent in Israel around this war. Um, I I just want to say something parenthetical that it was a little disappointing to me uh, to hear the Saudi foreign minister at Davos at a time when Israel is, in a sense, on the fence on these issues, under pressure from the International Court of Justice, the Israeli military has decided that they are now going to Phase Three. You know, this is an important, um, you know, uh, uh, admission by the Israeli military that they're not able to advance their goals. Phase Three, by the way, means that they're going to pull out many of the troops from Gaza and just go in on raiding missions. I think the death of these 21 soldiers has rattled the Israeli Defense Force, they're moving now to phase three. At this time, when Israel is being quite weakened on the international stage, unable to actually prosecute its war aims beyond mass destruction in Gaza, Um, they've had to withdraw their troops and so on. At this time, Saudi foreign minister makes a declaration at Davos at the World Economic Forum saying, listen, um, we are willing to normalize with Israel if they conduct an immediate ceasefire. I mean to offer that on the table right now strikes me as extraordinarily revealing of the shallowness of the saudis when it comes to their support for the palestinians the fact that he can make a comment like this in the context when it looks like the pressure on israel to conduct a ceasefire is going to be enormous and when there might be pressure as well brian to prevent what the israeli high officials have been calling the Gaza Nakba or the second Nakba, meaning the erasure of a Palestinian presence in Gaza. At that time, for the Saudis to make this comment, I thought was extremely um, unhelpful for the cause of Palestinian justice. Um, whatever the International Criminal Court rules, however they rule, most likely they will rule for provisional measures. Um, it is extraordinary how the South Africans have lifted the cudgel. And I want to recognize this because i I see this very much as part of a new mood in the global south um the south africans not only took this to the court but then the government of germany you know which has its as you know its own history of genocide within europe the mass killing of jews uh, you know romani people and others within europe the germans then made a public statement saying no no we back israel There is no genocide happening in Gaza and, you know, at that point, somebody that I've known for a while, Mr. Hage Gienbob, the president of Namibia, released a very powerful statement and I think people need to recognize that, you know, Namibia is not a very strong uh, country on world affairs. It's faced its own challenges since uh, the South West Africa, won its independence became Namibia, it's faced a lot of challenges. The president of Namibia, Mr. Gein released a statement directly speaking to the Germans saying, listen, um, we don't accept your statement about Israel and what's happening in Gaza. And we don't accept it because we don't think you have legitimacy when it comes to talking about genocide. And instead of talking about the Holocaust, which they very well could have, they reminded the world that between 1904 and 1908, the Germans... Conducted a genocide against the Herero and Namikwa people in then Southwest Africa, now Namibia. And reminding the world of that genocide, he said, you know, countries like Germany should not enter um, a deliberation when it comes to things like genocide. We know better. And I think this is a very interesting development in world affairs where the South is saying we have more legitimacy when it comes to adjudicating issues such as genocide mass killing and
1: crimes against humanity because we are its victims yeah so important uh, i'm so glad you mentioned namibia vj and of course namibia or what was then southwest africa uh, became a german colony as a consequence of an agreement uh in berlin in 1884 where all the colonizers the imperialists the major capitalist powers of Western Europe and the US was there as an observer, they decided to divide Africa. And they divided Africa, and within 18 years, all African self governance, with the exception of Ethiopia, vanished. In 18 years, I mean, the complete colonization of Africa. And it included a lot of massacres, a lot of destruction of peoples by all kinds of measures. And, you know, when you think about Palestine and you think about all of the countries of the Middle East, they were also part of that. They were part of the colonial division. Uh, at first a peaceful division before 1914 and then a violent division or redivision after the start of World War I. But these are, this is, I'm so glad you framed it that way VJ, because there's a reason Palestine has the support of the people in Namibia and South Africa and all the uh, countries and peoples of the Global South because they are the colonized people. And this isn't a struggle that began in 180, uh, in, 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 20, in October 7th, and it's not really a, even started in 1948 with the Nakba. It is the history of colonialism as perhaps the dominating issue for the majority of the people on the planet. Uh, and again, the U.S. has always used proxy forces like the Saudi royal family and others in the global south, Uh, there are tensions yes but they rule by you know a number of different means but including using proxy or comprador bourgeoisie in the global south in the colonized or semi-colonized parts of the world but this is an epic battle and you know when you think about what's changed in the world the Palestinians have said we will not disappear we will not be erased by this colonial process you know Benjamin Uh, Netanyahu was at the United Nations two weeks before October 7th and I want to, we have some b-roll of it. It's him showing a map and it includes Saudi Arabia. That's one of the reasons I think it's important to notice because there's Netanyahu showing, look, we now have peace with all of these different Arab countries. We have peace with Egypt. We're going to have peace with Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia was on the verge of normalizing and creating a diplomatic relationship, normal relations with the state of Israel. Uh, And if you look at that map closely, Vijay, there is no Gaza, there is no West Bank. It's a complete erasure of the Palestinian people. This was two weeks before October 7th. This colonial project where the indigenous people, the indigenous inhabitants, the people who have lived there for thousands of years, are being erased because it's in the interest of colonial powers and what happened on October 7th is the Palestinians said no you're not going to erase us Uh, we're here and if you look at what's going on in the past four months the South African case the global protest movement the statements of countries like Namibia uh, it's it's brought Palestine back to the fore so you know what are the Palestinians supposed to do be erased silently quietly go down just be you know have either a cultural genocide or a complete diaspora or an actual physical genocide without struggle or will they and should they struggle and palestine has made it clear using all kinds of methods that they won't be erased they're going to keep fighting
2: yeah i mean look frankly um mr netanyahu and other high officials uh, have said for a very long time that Um, There is no such thing as Palestine, you know, this this uh, refusal to accept the existence of a Palestinian state project. In other words, to accept um, the Oslo Accords as something that uh, must be rooted in Israeli politics. You know, ever since 1994, when the Oslo Accords were on the table, the Israelis have violated them. They've never taken it seriously. You know, uh, Brian, I came on your show and we talked about that slogan from the river to the sea. Um, And people are very upset about it. And they think, well, this means that um, those who use the slogan are talking about the erasure of Israel. Well, interestingly enough, this slogan is right there in the maps and statements made by high Israeli officials, but they see from the river to the sea as part of Eratz Israel, greater Israel. There's no need to have the Palestinians anywhere. In fact, when people in the Palestinian movement say from the river to the sea what they are often referring to and not always i'll grant you that there are people who have ideas i don't agree with but they're often talking about the founding of a state project which is neither a jewish state nor a palestinian state but a democratic republic of all peoples who live in that territory i think most people are of that view what is sometimes in shorthand called a one state solution I mean, genuinely, a uh, uh, genuine, sincere look at the statements made by Mr. Netanyahu, just Mr. Netanyahu, in his long career in Israeli politics, will show you that he has never regarded uh, it, uh, it, it as an available possibility to have a Palestinian state. Uh, the erasure of Gaza is something has been on the map for a long time. The Israeli state project has already Incorporated large parts of East Jerusalem. It's difficult to find in East Jerusalem even the old cemeteries. Um, some of the old cemeteries have been bulldozed and made into parking lots. Uh, the famous cemetery that has the Khalidi family graves uh, was basically erased and made into a parking lot. The West Bank, I mean, people are aware already of the illegal settlement project and so on the two-state solution is something the israeli government has never accepted and so now for mr netanyahu to say once again we reject the two-state solution should provoke surprise this is precisely the logic of um, the likud party certainly um, mr netanyahu's right-wing partners but i think also part of the israeli state project because a lot of this stuff is financed by the israeli state including um, the the Labour Party also is, is participating in this. So, I mean, I feel like if people are surprised by some of this stuff, they shouldn't be. And those who are upset about the slogan, from the river to the sea, you should be upset about the annexationist mentality that is there in among Israeli high officials, documented in the 84-page um, statement made before the International Court of Justice just go and read those pages uh, that are available at the international court of justice website and you will see statement after statement essentially saying that the palestinians have to be removed that is a violation of the fourth geneva convention under the um, the, the idea of population transfer it's a war crime uh, you will see use of language like human animals savages and so on dehumanizing language used by not fringe right-wing elements you know brian we are used to fringe right-wing elements using this sort of language these are high officials of the government including the president of israel isaac herzog isaac herzog was photographed signing his name to bombs that were used to drop on residential areas in gaza mr herzog was then welcomed at the world economic forum as a legitimate um, you know world leader mr herzog should soon be too scared to travel why because they should be using universal jurisdiction a warrant for his arrest uh, for war crimes against the palestinians if the icj provisional measures comes out i am sure there will be a lot of pressure brian on the international criminal court to file individual warrants against people like isaac herzog and I am sure a judge, somebody like Bartholomew Garzon in Spain is going to use universal jurisdiction to file um, a some sort of, you know, Interpol warrant for the arrest of people like Isaac Herzog, Benjamin Netanyahu, and all the people, the high officials who've been involved at least in this war against the Palestinians.
1: Uh, there's precedent for that as well, Vijay. Uh- You know, Pinochet, the military dictator in Chile, uh, thought he had impunity, but actually, this same concept and principle was applied, and he was arrested while traveling. Donald Rumsfeld, after the Iraq War, had to restrict his travel because uh, courts in Europe were, you know, eager to prosecute uh, American officials for war crimes against the people of Iraq. I mean, it's not actually a small thing so when we look at what's going on you see uh vj and this is what we talked about in our last show that uh there's an attempt to caricature demonize and 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 sort of cast those advocating palestinian liberation as advocates of genocide and then river to the sea has been demonized on college campuses and Student groups are being shut down because they're chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. The Likud party and Benjamin Netanyahu is the leader of the Likud party. They have that same slogan in their manifesto from 1977. Their intention was to take all of Palestine as you you said. We're reaching this climax. I feel like we're reaching a climax. Netanyahu has been fully embraced by by Biden and I think Biden, we we thought, or I certainly thought a month or two ago that the US because Israel was becoming so globally isolated that the US would sort of restrain Israel or tell them to stop. I thought that might happen and that a deal could be worked out, some sort of deal, either a long-term deal or an interim deal. But Netanyahu knows his political career is at stake. He can't, the prolongation of the war is actually in his interest. And I think the U.S. has come to the conclusion, and I want to get your thoughts on this. I think Biden has come to the conclusion that if Israel could actually win, if they could win, if they could be, even if all of Gaza is destroyed, if they could militarily free at least some of the hostages and kill the Hamas leadership, uh, then they will have some trophies and they can say, mission accomplished as George W. Bush said when he got on that aircraft carrier after the fall of Baghdad in 2003. I think Biden is all in on the genocide because they think the only way that this can be justified from a political point of view, not a moral point of view, not an ethical point of view because there is no justification, but from a narrow political point of view is if the Israelis can win, so-called win, whatever that means, but they can only win with genocide. Anyway, I wanna get your thoughts.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the United States has to really introspect, at least the, the leading officials of the United States, the ruling elites have to really introspect. I mean, when is the last time, Brian, the United States has actually won a war in terms of political objectives? Um, you know, you mentioned the book I did with, with Chomsky, uh, it's called The Withdrawal for Good Reason. Um, the United States went into Afghanistan with the aim of eradicating the Taliban, um, making um, you know Afghanistan safe from any kind of threat. Well, 20 years later, the United States was defeated by the Taliban. The United States had to leave; didn't gain political objective there. Then the United States enters Iraq in 2003, an illegal war not sanctioned by the United Nations, a war of aggression against the Iraqi people. Hence. The war crimes and questions of universal jurisdiction against George W. Bush, um, you know, against Donald Rumsfeld and so on. Um, well, then again, you know, almost a decade later, it didn't take 20 years, the United States discovered little more than a decade later that, well, they had to leave. And in fact, they found that Iranian influence in Baghdad had increased, not US influence. Um, and now uh the united states sitting in northern iraq in fact in a way colonizing kurdistan there are also israeli troop presence there in northern iraq um you know they are being called upon by the iraqi government and in fact this statement reiterated at davos um, by the iraqi prime minister saying well you know the us must now remove troops from all iraq territory so much for attaining any war aims in iraq and then let's move on to libya 2011 united states with france uh, under the cover of nato bombs that country destroys the state murders Muammar al gaddafi and then leaves what chaos there are at least two governments sitting in libya no real war aims con- uh, achieved because libyan oil is now still offline for europe a uh, part of the reason why europe is struggling to survive, part of the reason why Europe became more energy dependent on Russia, as it turned out. Um, the United States is a very poor judge of what victory is. And you already referenced George W. Bush's mission accomplished moment. Very poor judge of victory. In this case, you know, people need to reflect. If you're going to back the Israeli uh, position, Mr. Netanyahu's war cabinet, all the way to victory. Victory means completion of the genocide. That's what victory means. I mean, you know, Hamas as an organization, the, the Islamic resistance movement, the acronym is Hamas, Hamas was only founded in 1987. Hamas was not there in 1948. The Hamas was not there during the uprising of 1936. Um, there has been a Palestinian resistance movement that long preceded Hamas, And there will be a Palestinian resistance movement that comes, even if Hamas is as it were destroyed now. Um, Because unless there is justice for the Palestinians, that resistance movement is going to continue. It will germinate somewhere. It's already restive in the camps in Jordan, restive in the camps in Lebanon. You're not going to be able to control this. Right now, 25,000, 26,000 Palestinians have been killed. Uh, That still leaves several million Palestinians in Gaza itself. Where will they go? You'll push them into the Sinai Desert, for instance. Egypt doesn't want that. Egypt is not interested in that because that is going to pressure Egypt to crack down on the Palestinians. A very bad look. Um, Otherwise, they'll have to cut the peace deal they have with Israel. If there are Palestinians in Sinai that want to conduct operations against um, the Israelis, It's going to put Egypt. Egypt doesn't want to be put in that position. There is no victory for Israel here. You know, I've tried to game out, Brian, all the different scenarios. You know, I've sat with my notebook saying, "Okay, this is if this happens, what happens?" We're talking two million Palestinians. Most of them, uh, young people, uh, very angry, very upset. Uh, They are radicalized in a way that the Israelis will not be able to understand. I mean, I. Was at an interview with um, Khalid Mishal of Hamas in, 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 uh, in Doha, Qatar. Mr. Khalid Mishal made a very straightforward statement. This is about 12 years ago. Mr. Khalid Mishal said, You know, those people who demonize Hamas, they don't know what kinds of political views are germinating in the camps and small towns of Gaza. There are people far to the right of us. Far more dangerous than us. That's Khalid Mishal, the leader of Hamas. What he was trying to indicate is that, in fact, uh, the frustrations among young people are taking them into directions that the Israelis probably know about and might even welcome, Brian, because that will increase their own uh, pretext for much more genocidal activity. I think people need to understand that there is no way for the Israelis to win unless they quote-unquote complete the genocide the biden administration is in fact you know shoulder deep in the blood of palestinians in this in this war cannot extricate itself himself mr biden travels around the united states everywhere he goes he gets heckled by people in the crowd calling him genocide joe calling you know calling for a ceasefire in gaza i mean if mr biden even hopes to have a chance at re-election uh, against perhaps Donald Trump, he's going to and his team are going to reflect deeply on how their geopolitical strategy is going to bring down um, their possibility of re-election. I think already has has brought curtains to it. Um, they have no exit strategy. Mr. Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, looks more and more haggard, Brian. Every time I see him on television, he looks more destroyed and devastated. I don't think he knows what's going on. Um, you know, the fact that the United States bombed Yemen repeatedly now, second time, uh, in fact a very large attack, 87 strikes, um, this, the fact that the United States with Britain attacked Yemen shows their absolute cluelessness about what's happening in the region. They have no idea what they're doing. And as a situation like this unfolds and they have no idea, they go to what they know, which is attack, which is violence. Uh, They don't have any way of understanding the politics of what they're doing. Hence, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. And now, of course, um, they are entering this conflict in Yemen. And I, I would say to the people in the United States, you're making a big mistake. Do not enter this conflict once again. You already entered it on the backs of the Saudis, and the Saudis are desperately trying to find a way to get out of that conflict, because in many ways, they have been defeated.
1: VJ, uh, when President Obama announced the, the desire to pivot to Asia back in 2011, I think he represented a faction within the U.S. ruling class establishment that was thinking geostrategically, uh, let's not be bogged down in endless war in the Middle East because we keep fighting these losing battles middle east and south asia in the case of afghanistan we're we're fighting these losing battles and it's taking trillions of dollars and lots of life and we're getting nothing out of it there's no real there's no colonial result that you know they're weakening the region they're killing lots of people but killing people doesn't really add up to a financial or political advantage to us imperialism And China was rising, quote, peacefully. It didn't have America on its back. Now, we know what the pivot to Asia means. We didn't know exactly what it meant in 2011. Some of us thought we knew what it meant and maybe we were right. But it really meant turning the U.S. military and enormous economic and political pressure on China to, quote, contain China, slow down China's growth because the U.S. views China's development as a losing uh, a part of a losing equation uh, as sort of a zero sum game because if China rises the US empire thinks it's at the diminution of America and perhaps from the point of view of imperialism not from the point of view of the American people maybe it does diminish the power of the empire but here we are Vijay in 2024 you know 13 years after the pivot to Asia and the U.S. and its foreign policy establishment and the military bogged down again because this is Israel's war, but it's really America's war. I mean, Israel could not actually do what it's doing without America's full engagement. So you're talking about hubris, arrogance, geostrategic mistakes, lack of accountability, failed policies, but absent sort of Punishment, absent somebody being held to account, the same players make the same mistakes over and over again. And again, it's human beings in the targeted countries that pay the real price. But from the point of view of US empire, it's a losing battle, too. I mean, it's a really it's it's it really shows in a way how arrogance and hubris are really a vital enemy of the US Empire but lack of accountability by those who demonstrate arrogance and hubris and thus make one mistake after another, it doesn't stop. It
2: says a lot, Brian, about also the information order in in the West in general, not just in the United States. You know, I looked at polling data recently and in the United States, majorities of people want a ceasefire in Gaza. Majorities of people think that the United States is spending too much money in Ukraine. Those are sane opinions. Um, The ruling elites and the government are not there with the public on these issues. You know, um, this is uh, Pew-type polling, you know, so it has some legitimacy. There are people saying we want to ceasefire, majorities of people, and saying we don't want to spend all this money. 44% of Democrats, in fact, saying that too much money is going to Ukraine, Um, 67% of Republicans. So on these two issues, the people have developed, I don't know from what, perhaps the protests in New York City, which um, the mayor and others seem to be so bent out of shape about, those protests are having an impact and the New York Post can't write enough articles to change people's minds because people are disheartened by what they're seeing in, in Gaza. On the other hand, Polling data also shows that a majority of people wouldn't mind the United States going to war with China. I find that very interesting, that why is that the case? And that's the failure, in a way, of the information order. Um, Shouldn't there be some reporting in the New York Times, in the Washington Post saying, look, frankly, it's a bad idea for the United States to go to war with China. Why?" China is a very large country 1.4 billion people um, the Chinese have a very strong military to defend their borders they have nuclear weapons they have missiles it's a very stupid idea and they would also defend themselves they are not willing to allow themselves you know to be bombed and they'll take it silently um I'm surprised in a way by the irrationalism of the high media elites in the United states that they are not even trying to enter into a discussion and debate with the general public saying, this is a terrible idea. China is not going to be like, um, you know, what you'd imagine, let's say missile strikes against Sudan uh, when Bill Clinton launched them, you know, against Khartoum um, on the street where my, my uncle actually lived, uh, was struck by by that missile in, in Khartoum in 1998. You know, China will retaliate. In fact, you want to measure Of what might happen if you attack a Chinese city? Look at what the Yemenis are doing. I mean, Yemen, for instance, coming back to Yemen, Brian, Yemen um, attacked by Saudi Arabia in 2015. Why were they attacked by Saudi Arabia? Because a popular movement from the north of Yemen, bordering the uh, Saudi uh, Yemeni border, uh, decided to lead a big march from their part of the country in Yemen to Sana'a, the capital. Now these people who marched are mostly from the Houthi tribe. They are not Houthis, by the way. This is the Zaidi uh, Islam movement. They are, they have a political movement called Ansar Allah. They are Zaidi Shias. Uh, people should know that the Zaidi Shias used to once rule Yemen um, around, and you know they defeated the Ottomans just before the British colonial elite took over southern Yemen in 1839 zaidi shias have a very long history of being rulers in yemen anyway the houthi tribe they are zaidi shiites they marched to sana and they led a big national movement against inflation against the destruction of the country and overthrew a government the hadi government which was sitting in a move and pick hotel people may not know move and pick move and pick is a five-star hotel they spent Two years in this move-and-pick hotel trying to create some national reconciliation plan. Well, the Zaidi Shias led by this movement called Ansarallah decided, forget it. We're not going to sit around in some hotel and for two years discuss this while people are starving. We're just going to march to Sana'a and they took over the government. Um, the Saudis did not like that, started a war. That war has been going since 2015 till today, almost nine years that war has been going. Saudi's mercilessly bombed the country, destroyed the infrastructure, destroyed uh, the port, attacked the roads. You know, made it very hard to survive. The Yemenis have survived. Not only have they survived, they fought back. They defeated Saudi Arabia. Now, when this uh, war, genocidal war, took place, is taking place in Gaza, the the Ansarallah movement and the Yemeni government said, "We are not going to allow, particularly ships with Israeli flags, but." any ship that is, um, you know, providing supplies to Israel, not going to be allowed to get through our waters. And they started attacking them. United States says, we're going to bomb you. Let me ask the U.S. planners a question from your show, Brian. Let me ask Lloyd Austin, have you studied what Ansar Allah and the Yemeni people went through against the Saudis? Do you think they are going to be deterred by half a dozen cruise missiles? Do you think they care? They have, Fortified themselves to battle against relentless Saudi bombardment. These things that they are doing, which are killing Yemeni civilians, by the way, are not going to impact what's happening in Yemen. They are going to keep fighting. If you want to understand what it's going to mean to go to war against China, study the Yemenis. The Yemenis are united to defend their country against any and every attack, including by the British. I mean, the British, disgraceful. Britain colonized. Yemen from 1838 till 1962. It's a disgrace that they feel that they have the right to bomb Yemen again. It's disgraceful. Rishi Sunak should be ashamed of himself for that. The Yemenis aren't going to back down because somebody has come and pricked them with a pin. They have faced much worse from the Saudis. That's a good place for Lloyd Austin and others to study and for the editors of the New York Times to study What it might mean if the US thinks it can go and attack China. The Chinese are not going to be subordinated. This is not Sudan 1998. They are going to fight back. They're going to defend their borders. Um, So, I mean, there needs to be, when I use terms like hubris and so on, Brian, there needs to be some reflection in the United States, in the upper reaches. Some sanity needs to be there. And I think we, as people who are interested in bringing some sort of sensitivity and rationality into the public discourse. Uh, we are trying to play our role, but look, the moment we try to play our role, they malign us. You know, They say, you are this, that, and the other thing. Look, let's have a conversation. Why do you feel the need to malign um, us rather than have a conversation with us? I mean, I thought these people are supposed to be democratically minded.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned Yemen. If we had a, a, a- image of the map of the Middle East where we could show Yemen, I would love to have it because Yemen, when you compare it to Gaza, is very big. Uh, and it's a huge area. And the, and the struggle between the Yemeni people and the Saudis created a military infrastructure like Gaza, which was largely underground. I mean, the tunnel structure that the Israelis have so much trouble penetrating in Gaza, I mean, that's small compared to what the Yemeni resistance forces have developed over these last years. And you're right, Vijay. I mean, U.S. Special Operation Forces were on the ground in Yemen, and they were giving the bombing coordinates to the Saudi military, to the Air Force, the Saudi Air Force, so that they could drop thousands of bombs and missiles on the people of Yemen. And they did not persevere. They did not win. So you had the U.S. I mean, this is the irony of the situation. George W. Bush bombed Yemen. Obama bombed Yemen. Trump bombed Yemen. Now Biden is bombing Yemen. And what's the, consequence, what's the result? On American TV, people talking about how Yemen is a terrorist entity. Like, really? I mean, if you drop thousands of bombs and support the bombing of a country by, in this case, Saudi Arabia, And you do that for that long, four consecutive presidents have been bombing Yemen, but Yemen is the terrorist. I mean, it shows the absurdity of the narrative. I mean, it's the same with Cuba. I mean, Cuba, which is a victim of American uh, terrorism is on the terrorist list because Trump decided to end Obama's policy of semi-normalization by putting Cuba back on the terrorism list. And Biden continued Trump's policy rather than going back to Obama's policy. But my point is that the narrative about terrorism and who's to blame and who's responsible, it has an impact for a while on the American people because the mainstream media is this faithful echo chamber repeating all of this obvious nonsense as if because it's repetition and done over and over and over again, some part of the population will believe it It must be true. The Yemenis must be terrorists because every TV station they turn on says they are. But then the people of the world who are not watching MSNBC or CNN, they look at this and they know completely, completely what the deal is. They know the deal. Anyway, I think that as you're saying, Israel can't win but u s. imperialism, because there is no rationality, there is no reasonableness in this policy, military and foreign policy, it can't win either. But it can do a lot, a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I want to talk a little we have a, a clip about I want to spend a moment or two on the narrative issue. There was a debate in the UN between the South African foreign minister and the Israeli ambassador about the beheading uh, by Hamas allegedly of babies in Israel. Now we all know that that turned out to be completely untrue. I want to play the clip and I want to talk to you though because if you take a poll among large parts of the American people they'll think yeah Hamas terrorist uh, they beheaded babies it's all true. Anyway this fight about narrative is so Politically important. That's why the protests matter. That's why independent alternative media matters. That's why triken matters Anyway, let's play this clip and then I want to get your thoughts Did I hear you correctly saying that? The atrocities that we are
2: speaking about the beheading of children that those are fake news that it's not true Is that the position of the South African government? I want to ask you now
1: Thank you. No, it is evidence that has been provided by a range of non-governmental organizations, both in Israel and Palestine, because we don't only speak to Palestinians, we speak to peace-loving Israelis as well. And we know that there's a lot of fake news that attempts to cast Palestinians in a bad light. And it has been admitted, even from the White House spokesperson, that that statement that was made at the highest level, was actually proven not to be factual. So, Honorable Member, I've responded to your question. And it's important, as I said at the start of my contribution, that when we speak on these matters, let us speak being honest and factual. You know, the South Africans, the BJ, they went to the ICJ, the UN highest judicial court. But there is this other court, the court of world public opinion, which as a socialist, as a Marxist, ultimately, if you believe that people make history, that the class struggle is the motor force. And and by class struggle, I mean the struggle against imperialism is a motor force for change. This other court, the court of public opinion is perhaps even more important than any other legal court. And the South Africans, when they have been making these arguments so well, so with such eloquence and basing it on truth, they have garnered the support of the Global South. 61 countries and all of them are in the Global South. None of them are NATO members, have signed on to support the South African claim.
2: Yeah, I mean, firstly,
1: um, the. Foreign Minister of South
2: Africa, Naledi Pandor herself, is a person of great integrity. And the way she handles questions like that is really to be commended. Um, These are heroes of our time, you know, who are brave and willing to stand up. The fight over narrative, as you put it, is extremely important. And if I may, let's go back to the Yemen issue for a moment. Um, You know, the way in which people talk about what's happening in Yemen, Um, The kind of callousness, Uh, there's so much forgetting. What's forgotten, for instance, is that the United States government, in fact, um, through various forms of drone strike and airstrike, assassinated not only a number of Yemenis, lists are available, not only were there Yemeni teenagers sitting in Guantanamo, but the United States government, led at the time by Barack Obama, actually killed US citizens in Yemen who they uh, said were terrorists. There was no due process for them. I'm talking about first Anwar al-Awlaki, who was a cleric uh, from the United States in Yemen. Um, You know, he himself was admitted that he was participating in violent activities, but there was no due process, he was killed. Okay, now one could say, well, he himself admitted and so on. But was there a need to kill 16 year old Abdul Rahman al-Awlaki, his son, on a subsequent drone strike. A 16-year-old U.S. citizen was killed in Yemen. Was there any need for that? No accountability, by the way, for the murder of a 16-year-old U.S. citizen uh, in Yemen who had no connection to al-Qaeda or any
1: group. No accountability. Vijay Prashad, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Brian.
0: That was a report from Brian Becker. And that's it for this edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. I will talk to you again next week.